is that at the ceremony, it's it's the right of the Bishop of Durham to uh, um, to accompany the monarch. And as we, we said, Victoria only went to the Abbey the day before. Um, mm. And she's certainly not very complimentary about, about him because she is at her side during the ceremony. And during the journal entry, she she describes to Lord Melbourne that he's rather ma- that he's remarkably maladroit uh, because he could never tell her what was due to take place when <laughs> it should have been. Welcome to Coronation Catastrophes, a Royal History Geeks podcast commemorating the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. It's summer 1838 and Britain is experiencing a new dawn. Following the years of George III's incapacitation and the debauchery of his sons, a new young queen had come to the throne the previous year and she's about to be crowned. Born in 1819 during the succession crisis following the death of the Prince Regent's only daughter Charlotte in childbirth, Alexandrina Victoria was a small girl with a big temperament and all of the violent passion of her Hanoverian forebears. She certainly didn't hold back in expressing her sentiments, and we can see this in her own writings, preserved for posterity in her journals, which she kept faithfully each day. When asked in an interview in the 1970s if her grandmother ever used the words, we are not amused, the late Princess Alice, Countess of Athlone, replied, wasn't it a pity? Now, while that phrase may have been nothing more than a figment of the imagination, garnered during the long years of widowhood, there was certainly little that would have amused the 19-year-old queen at her coronation. While other coronation ceremonies may have been beset by problems ahead of the event, but were all right on the night, Victoria's didn't live up to that adage. There was much confusion about the form of service. She was made to wait around an indeterminable amount of time, an elderly peer was almost injured paying homage, and the Queen left the Abbey with a very painful finger. In this episode we look at the events in this tumultuous ceremony, and using the Queen's own words, we explore some of the familial relations within the royal family itself at the time. Hello and welcome to the fourth in our series of Coronation Catastrophes, a Royal History Geeks podcast commemorating the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. I'm Royal History Geeks creator Gareth Streeter, and I'm joined, as usual, as I have been for the duration of the series, by Royal commentator James Taylor. James, how are we? I'm all right, thank you. I'm excited that uh, the coronation, King Charles's coronation, is almost upon us. I'm sad that this is going to be the last in our series of Coronation Catastrophes. I know I'm I'm sad I'm sad as well I mean we we could obviously there's been a lot of coronations <laughs> uh, over the years and we we just in the interest of time decided to focus on these these four moments and to do the catastrophes theme but it's been such good fun um and I hope people have enjoyed listening to them in the run up to the coronation and I think, I think I hope people feel that even you know when they come across this years later, they still feel it's 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 relevant 
um and people whenever they're listening to them they'll find like an episode like today's episode of queen victoria timeless sure but i must say i am feeling the pressure a bit because after all you know we're always being told fail to prepare prepare to fail now that could really be true of victoria's coronation yes i suppose we should bring bring ourselves back to the topic of today queen victoria's coronation yeah because we've talked we've called this whole series a coronation uh coronation catastrophes which as we've always said is a light-hearted look an excuse to talk about the sort of the politics of the surroundings of uh of, of the coronations in, in years gone by we're not in any way suggesting that coronations are catastrophic in their own right or indeed that this one will be but i think people will say and um I, I should say as well we've we've recorded all of these podcasts before putting any of them out so we don't know yet know any of the reaction to any of the previous ones will be i think some people would say okay guys i've really enjoyed these but cheeky they're not really catastrophes are they the coronations are perfectly fine you're just talking about some of the the surrounding noise and politics around them but actually victoria's really arguably could be the one that gets called a coronation of catastrophes but what i'm wondering is how much of that has come down to us in either popular culture or even through popular fiction is it really true was it as bad as all that i think i think we can say it was as bad as all that really i mean victoria's coronation when you look at it when you and certainly when you look at the accounts of it it is just one incident after another um and one can't help but speculate that some more preparation might have helped matters i mean the Queen didn't visit Westminster Abbey until the day before the coronation. And even then, she wasn't keen to do it. She only does it because Lord Melbourne suggests that this would be a good idea for her to go and see the Abbey for herself and see the space where she's going to be crowned. Uh, and she she emerges from the Abbey after the rehearsal. Uh, well, a rehearsal seems a bit too formal of a term for what actually mm -hmm. happened. Um, but she writes in her journal for the, for the day before the coronation, I'm very glad I went to the Abbey. Now I know exactly where to go and where to be, etc. And, well, she didn't on the day, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> so would you put much of the blame at her door then, her own personal lack of preparation? I, no, I think that that's probably a bit unfair. Um, I think that you certainly can put a lot of the blame at her door because she... she I mean, you have to remember that Queen Victoria is 19 at this time. Mm, mm. You know, she's only just turned 19. She's been queen for a year. And after all, you know, all of those years of seclusion in Kensington Palace, of only being able to... Uh, go downstairs uh, holding either a mother's hand or Baroness Leitz and her governess's hand mm. uh, of not being able to, to see anyone in private, not being able to go in it, you know, and that's why on the day she becomes queen, you see, you know, she, she meets Lord Melbourne alone, as I always intend to do with my ministers. I, I mm. received this person alone. I went into the council alone, you know, all of those things. So, you know, there's, there's obviously been a huge shift in her life, not just mm. becoming mm. queen and taking on the responsibilities, but in, in a personal terms that she's acting on her own agency rather than on yeah. her mother's or, or yeah. anyone else's. So I think that that has probably both her youth and the, you know, the sense that she is now queen, does breed that that sort of false mm. sense of of pride and that that sort of and you know we all know pride goes before a fall so yes i, I do think that yeah. it's, it's someone it's, else's fall in this case but well, we'll yes someone else's fall. In this case. although in fairness we can't really blame her for that bit mm. um but uh, but you are right it, somebody else does fall um and victoria does have a sort of false sense of pride but i think as well you know we'll as we'll we'll explore throughout this there is more to it than that i mean 
you know, they they couldn't decide on that. I mean, Victoria's coronation is a year after she comes to the throne, unlike some of the others that we've looked at, where you know Henry VIII's coronation was was two months after he came to the mm. throne. Same with Henry VII. Queen Victoria, there's a full year. But yet it's only very late on they actually decide when the date is going to be. There's lots of discussions to and fro in the cabinet mm. of when the date is actually going to be. Um, and during, and she describes as well, the Bishop of Durham after the service as being rather maladroit because he didn't seem to know where things were, uh, mm. what was happening either. So no, we can't say it's entirely Victoria, but I think it is fair to say that a lot of it is engendered through her sort of false sense of pride, false sense of security, that everything will be all right on the night. And she's put in very little effort herself. And it seems also that uh, a lot of the officials have put in, not no effort, but but they're all they all seem to have a little bit of a lax attitude of it will mm. be it will be all right and i think as well there's there's that false sense of security because it's only seven years after william the fourth has been crowned mm -hmm. 17 years since uh george the fourth has been crowned as well so they've had two coronations in recent memory so i think mm -hmm. that that again engenders that sort of thing oh well, it's happened quite recently so therefore when you know it, it will be we'll know people will know what to do and it'll all be fine well, it's it's kind yeah. of not really. Well, well, I've I've got two questions for you leading on from all that. I'll ask them separately um, and give you a chance to answer each. So the first one, do you think, so Queen Victoria's coming to her coronation completely unprepared, doesn't know what she's doing, but with a false sense of confidence, which really is probably born out of girlish naivety, that confidence, rather than an ingrained hubris perhaps do you think that is symbolic of the way she came to the throne completely unprepared but probably with a girlish naivety i mean i remember um there's a i mean you you could probably tell me whether this is true or not because i can't remember where i've read it but where she's looking at, with lord melbourne at the list of peers attending and she says to him oh well there aren't many viscounts coming are there and he <laughs> says well no yeah. there aren't many viscounts now given how important society was in these days and to be a participating member of the nobility as an adult you knew you knew your viscounts from your marquesses and your countesses from your baronesses and who was who that that mattered and she had that kind of level of naivety over the whole how the whole system of aristocracy and politics that she was now at the head of worked is there is there a dramatic symbolism in this catastrophe of a coronation well i think that well firstly on on the issue of the viscounts isn't wasn't the reason given that to, to be a viscount wasn't quite an english title not english oh oh you see that you go right back to medieval you basically i mean all right let's do a little little history of the of the peerage um even though this is a tangent <laughs> um yeah basically we you have in the oldest in the oldest post-norman feudal nobility that we have you have barons as a very generic term for all the landed class quite soon straight away really you have the revival of an old anglo-saxon term earl to mean a kind of baron of the barons a few premium maybe five or six barons that stand a little taller than everywhere else by the time you're kind of getting to 14th 15th century you've kind of got earl and baron as two recognized classes of the peerage and by that stage duke has been added as the sort of super earl that's added really by um the, in the century before in in the in the 13th century and so really you've got baron 
Pearl and Duke are, the, are seen as the main proper English titles. And then Marquess is sort of seen as this slightly French, which is no bad thing, because I mean, a lot of continental noble practice are French, but sort of excessive thing that's kind of brought it under Richard II, this king of excess. And it's seen as almost a bit, a bit vain, but for an earl, not quite good enough to be a duke. And then Viscount, I can't tell you exactly when Viscount comes in, but they start becoming popular in the reign of Henry VI, where Henry VI was a nice man, but a very inactive king. And he basically just gave everyone whatever they asked for. So a lot of barons would cheekily be like, oh, hey, Henry VI, I'm a baron. Fancy you make me a Viscount? And you just get this sort of grade inflation um, from a load of barons to Viscounts. And there's a bit of a sense of, that's a bit cheap. If you, you know, if you can't be an earl, just be proud of being a baron. Don't do the whole Viscount thing. Um, anyway, that's a complete tangent. But yes, no, you're absolutely right. It isn't particularly English, but Victoria should have known that. And it's also very ironic, given that Melbourne himself was a Viscount. Yes, and I think that's partly why she she was, at this stage, we'll talk about this later, she sort of got this either fatherly or other infatuation with Melbourne, and I think she probably, therefore, is revering Viscountcies more than yes. more than she might realize, but yes. but again, you would have she's just become head of a system, yes. and she knows nothing about no, that. No, but system. I mean, I I think the thing to remember there is that as a as a child, I mean, she did only come to the throne at eighteen, so she'd not had much opportunity before then. But although she had gone on progress and she had visited um, places, you know, where they'd been hosted by members of the nobility, essentially because of the the type of upbringing that she'd had the kensington system mm. uh, where she was sort of locked away in kensington palace uh, she had very little to do with any of the 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 georgian uncles very rarely was able to go to court uh, and when she did, of course, that very famously, uh, not long before she came uh, to the throne, there was the, the great falling out with William IV and her mother, the Duchess of Kent. So there was certainly no love lost between her and members of the, the old royal family, as they referred to themselves later. So I think that she'd had, even as a, so as a child, she'd mm. very little experience of life outside the walls of Kensington Palace and outside of and of meeting the aristocracy. And so therefore, I think that that led to that sense of naivety, really, or, or certainly didn't help it. Uh, and of course, the fact that her mother was was German, uh, her father had died. So they, they, there was very little interaction, really. So I think that didn't help. Her mother is a more, more sort of fastidious German background believed that the english nobility were basically a load of drunken old oversexed loafs that she didn't she thought was a corrupting influence yes and and is that one could argue that's probably not too far from the truth at this point mm, mm. um well certainly i mean and that may be a bit unfair on the wider aristocracy but certainly on on uh george the third's sons that's that's mm. not that's not an unfair summary mm. given you know the 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 number of you know the, the levels of drunkenness um of, of sort of uh, you know debauchery and uh drunkenness and number of illegitimate children all of the you know in in the, the the georgian period that's you know we we see it as one sort of long debauched tale um now mm. we you know we may be looking at that slightly unfairly but even so it's not it's i think not far from the truth and so therefore that that assessment there's probably is probably harsh but there's probably truth in it yeah yeah no i think i think you're right and i think is actually 
because we i mean the one of the problems i don't know if this is a problem but it's a reality is queen victoria story is at its most beautiful as she's getting to marry her cousin husband albert mm. and that's the bit that i think many of us who are interested in this era really focus in on obviously it's through fiction but also journal entries letters around that period and at that period so this young victoria that we look at we look at her mother as quite a hostile figure because she victoria at this age is seeing the damage that that isolation has done to her and she's not grateful for it wind the clock on 10 years and you see how victoria and albert are collectively able to restore the dignity of the monarchy through being this quite proper moralistic christian family you can start to give more credit to victoria's mother the duchess of kent thinking you were probably part of that mm. and actually victoria whether she ever acknowledged it or not and i think she did more yeah. in later years yeah. yeah had 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 something to be praised about even if she didn't handle everything in the best possible way no and and, and i know that uh, again there's something we'll probably we'll we'll talk about in more on in more depth a bit later on but certainly by the time you know, certainly by the 1850s, the, the Duchess of Kent, she's got older, she's she's revered, not just by Victoria, but by, you know, by the family, but also when the Duchess of Kent dies, which is, of course, in the same year that uh, that Albert dies. So so her death and the effect that it had on Victoria is often overlooked, I think, because mm -hmm. of Albert's death. But she has a complete nervous collapse after her mother's death. And mm -hmm. and her journals are full of entries of, you know, my poor, dear, good mama. Um, and I, I never showed her how much I loved her. And, you know, that that type of, of entry where, you know, at this this point, they're probably as, as far apart as they as they mm. ever were. Mm. And and that's where we meet. This is where we meet Victoria. I guess that's the point of trying. Of course, we, it depends when you start studying her. But for most of us, this is roughly when we meet Victoria. And therefore, the Duchess of Kent is still a bit of a demon rather than a a tragic heroine who's genuinely tried her best through quite difficult circumstances. I think it's... so my, my second question for you, and I guess probably at some point we should probably actually describe people exactly what did go wrong um, at Victoria's coronation and what the particular things were. But in one sense, I wonder because of the access to source material that we have, whether we're harsher on this coronation because there's things we know. So if we go back to a Tudor coronation and we don't have a, detailed account of henry seventh or henry the eighth coronation as we describe but certainly the court heralds certainly henry the seventh likes to write about things would not have recorded these kinds of things going wrong partly because it would not have been politic to do so and partly because that wasn't really the bit they're interested in they were just trying to preserve the order of precedence and things like that so future generations could copy it so had something like this some of these things gone wrong they probably wouldn't have got mentioned i mean as everyone knows, just because I haven't yet plugged my book on Prince Arthur um, in this in this edition, um, uh, that that you can read between the lines and see how much was going wrong at Arthur's christening, and it's quite comical in the way the sort of the herald skirt around it, but it's not explicitly set. Um, and I'm always I'm always conscious that although we might say, "Oh yeah, well." If something had happened in a late medieval or a Tudor coronation, yeah, the official account wouldn't have wouldn't have 
wouldn't have captured it, but there'd be a bitchy letter from an ambassador or there'd be a bitchy monk chronicling about it somewhere. So it would survive. I'm not so sure because in Arthur's coronation, sorry, Arthur's coronation, he never had a coronation. Um, poor Arthur never got to that stage, did he? No, and that is a catastrophe. Um, but with Arthur's christening, you can tell it's go- all going wrong because the, the Herald can't really get around it, although it's it's sort of played down. But there's no other account of that. There is one other account, but again, it's even shorter. It's not doesn't have any of the juicy stuff in there. There's no, there's no sort of bitchy diplomatic account of it. Admittedly, it's slightly too early for that kind of thing in the reign of Henry VIII. There would be more access to that. So what I'm saying, this is my long-winded way of saying, we know a lot about what went wrong with Victoria's because of Victoria's own diary. Had we had a diary from other people. We might have found more that gone wrong and we wouldn't maybe. So Victoria is a victim of her own committing of the facts to history. She is. The other thing I would say is that, of course, we do have um, mass media by this stage. I mean, not to the stage we have today, but we do have newspapers. And so there would have been accounts that were published as well as as well as Victoria's own accounts. So I think that it would have been more difficult to keep any any real catastrophic events private Um, And of course, you have to remember that we don't have the same level of catastrophic events in in Edward VII's coronation. I mean, I know Edward VII's coronation is postponed because of his illness, but on the day it goes well, George Mm. V's coronation. George VI's coronation, I know that, you know, the archbishop nearly put, well, possibly did put the crown on the wrong way around. They couldn't decide whether it was right, but there still wasn't the same number of uh, of things that that, uh, beset Victoria. And they were obviously more... Uh, immediately public um yes. so yes you're right but i think that it, it's it, it's still it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy almost because all of those things did go wrong for, for victoria um but yes we do know about them because she did write them in, in the journals um and of course you know but then i suppose the, the bigger question is how much can we trust the journals given their editing right so and just I mean, this 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 is this is probably something worth mentioning. Now, a lot of people will be aware of this. So, Queen Victoria was a prolific diarist. I mean, she was she was the Samuel Pepys of of, of Victorian England. Um, she wrote, I think, every day or nearly every day, um, a fairly detailed account of her day. And upon her death, there were just volumes and volumes and volumes. She knew that they would one day become public. So, she asked her youngest daughter. Princess Beatrice, who had been her lifelong secretary stroke companion, how willing Beatrice was for that role <laughs> is, is perhaps is perhaps harder to know, but she didn't really have a choice. And she says, basically, Beatrice, when I die, your role as my secretary is not over. You are to edit all my diaries and to ensure that certain things are removed, things that might cause embarrassment etc etc which and you will have followed this debate with with much interest james but a lot of people believe victoria not not necessarily victoria commissioned but beatrice would have taken upon herself to remove dark secrets from victoria's you know was there a secret wedding um that has been lost to john brown you know what did was there the pregnancy of princess louise that's chopped out of these diaries you know is there a dark secret that i mean what do you think about all of that um, I think that because of the nature of it, we'll never know about some of the things that would have been excised. What I would say, though, is that we do actually have 
more access to um, to the original sources than you might think, because although Princess Beatrice did take a very risk averse approach, and you're right, particularly where members of the royal family are mentioned, mm. they, they are a lot of information is excised. And of course, Victoria did write her journal every day, but even when there were things of nothing of note happened. Uh, and so Beatrice did miss some of those out when there was nothing, you know, and that wasn't for any reason of upsetting anyone. It was just because they were they were too dull or too tedious uh, right. for to be preserved for history. You know, got up at eight o'clock and mm. <laughs> and went for a, a walk around the around the lake or something like that. You know, something like that would have been would have just have been removed mm. altogether because it wasn't considered. I mean, Victoria did actually write in her journal that uh, she felt that they would be uh, saved for. Uh, posterity so that is something that she was keen on herself you know mm -hmm. this is writing in in the 1840s before Beatrice is born and you know even when she I'm sure she only has two or three children at this point so she was she was thinking about the future and, and her place in history as she was writing them but we do actually have more access to the original sources than you might imagine because some of the early uh, diary entries, journal entries, were actually transcribed for Lord Isha. Right. Uh, and so some of those do survive. So when you look at them, and, and when we'll look at the coronation entry in more detail, there are certain pieces of information which are included in Lord Isha's transcripts uh, than are in the, the ones that were copied out. Because, of course, Beatrice copied them all out by hand as mm. well. Um, and so if you look at the originals, because they've all been digitised and, and now available online by the Royal Archives, you can see Beatrice's sort of spider handwriting. Mm. Uh, and although, yes, you do get the digital copies, you, you can see that sometimes the words of bit it's difficult to make out the words exactly, whereas, whereas the transcripts not made for Laudisha were actually typewritten. So right, that, right, right. that does mean that there's a bit less uncertainty about what, okay. was, what was being said. And of course, we also have to remember that there were two uh, volumes of uh, the journals that were published during mm. Victoria's lifetime. So there was yes. Leaves from Our Journal of uh, our, li our Life in the Highlands, uh, which covered 1848 to 1861. Uh, and then the sequel, More Leaves uh, from the Journal of Our Life in the Highlands from 1862 to 1882. Now, I, I know that there are only abridged versions. They only, they only refer to her... Uh, stays at Balmoral but even so they were published during her lifetime so there, there is more access to the sources from you know immediately from from what Vic and admittedly it was only what Victoria wanted to be published uh, so there's probably a, an element of self-censorship there but again but it must be said that we do have more access than than only mm, mm, mm. had copied out um and so and that becomes evident um when we when we look at some of the entries around the coronation and certainly around some of the people that are mentioned wouldn't it be amazing if we found somehow the princess beatrice had left the original she hadn't really burned the originals but she'd left the originals in like a time capsule or something that somehow could only be discovered a hundred years after her death or or something i mean i, I know that is not going to happen but it would be phenomenal wouldn't it well if it were we'd only, have, we'd only have about 20 years to go because beatrice died in 1944 so. exactly exactly so uh but no i know that wouldn't happen so but so did, did beatrice know that lord escher had a copy do you think of transcribe transcribe some of these we don't know for sure but we don't believe so we don't believe so because um because obviously beatrice had been created her mother's literary executor mm. and so 
but those copies have been made during the, the last years of Victoria's life. Uh, so it, it, we think that she didn't know, because if she did know, she would probably have wanted to have sight of them and, and have them destroyed. Uh, I mean, but we don't know that for sure. So presume, so they've been, so far as we know, they've been uh, copied, but they hadn't been circulated. So Beatrice was presumably not aware of it. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. And does the way, by, I mean, by comparing those transcripts to Beatrice's version, do we get a sense of what Beatrice's policy was to what was in and what was out? Yeah, I mean, one good example is for the entry or for the 5th of April, 1838. So just uh, a couple of months before the coronation. And in Lord Isha's transcript of the uh, of the journal, we see that the Queen has had a conversation with Lord Melbourne and she spoke of the coronation and that the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, her aunt and uncle, were very mm. angry at the notice being given to them about the coronation, which is not really surprising given it's two, still two months when they've just been given the date. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, nevertheless, you, you know, we get a flavour of the, the tensions within the royal family. They're not, mm. the, you know, the old members of the royal family are not happy with whether they're not happy with Victoria, whether they're not happy with the cabinet, you know, it's not entirely clear, but they're certainly not happy. They feel that they're being overlooked, then their precedence is not being kept, they're not being kept well informed and they're not able to make the preparations that they need to make. So we, right. you know, we do get a flavour of that. Um, but uh, yeah, no mention of this in, in Beatrice's version. So that's interesting because it because I the because I think if Beatrice's remit was anything that might cause offence to people. Um, then it seems that that's what she's followed. You know, it's just her mother, you know, talking about personal arguments or something like that with, with probably people that the queen wouldn't have wanted to be seen to be arguing with. Obviously Beatrice does preserve her, her more negative views about, about others. Mm. Um, I mean, how, what, I mean, obviously Beatrice for, for people like you and me, it's frustrating that Beatrice was as thorough as she was because the preservation of history is is something that both you and I have devoted so much of our lives to exploring or finding or benefiting from, I should say, and believing that that's important. But how? What about other members of of the royal family? I mean, you've got um, you've got by the time Beatrice was really finishing off the work, you've got George V, her mm. nephew, on the throne, married to. Queen Mary, Queen Mary certainly had a sense of history. Certainly, weirdly, because although she was born into the British, although she married into the British monarchy, she was also born into it. It's a real strong sense of the institution, and that's thought to be where Elizabeth II, in some ways, got her sense of of it from. And how would they feel about Beatrice's redacting passion? Well, it's said that the King and Queen, so George V and Queen Mary, weren't entirely happy with it, but uh, they felt powerless to be able to prevent it because because they that had been Victoria's wish and she was and Beatrice was carrying out her mother's wishes. Interestingly though, uh, just on that point about the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, you, you're right. Although Queen Mary married into the British royal family, she was actually a descendant of George III herself mm -hmm. because uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge were her grandparents. So her mother, Princess Mary Adelaide, was Ma Princess Mary Adelaide of Cambridge. Mm -hmm. So although Queen Mary did have a very so strong sense of history and certainly 
you know it's very well known about her love of uh, antiques and and mm. acquiring things but she she certainly did and you know there are all the stories about her going and uh, going to aristocratic houses and saying and admiring a piece of furniture mm. and and you know if they didn't take the hint then she would go back and say i must just go and say goodbye to that delightful cabinet before <laughs> i go you know as as a sort of all out hint that uh, that it should be presented to her she was also well known for uh, buying artifacts which had belonged to members of the royal family. So, for example, uh, for the current king's baptism, because remember Queen Mary was was still alive then. She was that was five years before uh, she died when uh, the current king was born, and she gave him a silver cup which mm -hmm. had belonged to which George the Third had given to a godchild. So she said that she gave a present from her great grandfather to her great grandson. And so mm. she was she was very in tune with with preserving that history, although one wonders whether she would have been quite so uh, interested in preserving that sort of negative sentiment that showed her her grandparents in a, in a yes not really not even really a negative light, but but that they were they were complaining about. Do you think that's why why Beatrice does edit this particular bit? Because obviously the Duke and Duchess themselves are long gone. Um, but do you think that's why she's a bit like, mm, yeah? I think it may have contributed that she didn't want to upset the king and queen because Beatrice mm. does have a reputation for, for you know, even after her mother has died, of being in awe of the throne. Yes. But I also think that, I, but I, essentially, I think it's more to do with the fact she doesn't want to show her mother in a bad light. I don't mm. think that she wants to show her mother as being gossiping about other members of the royal family to Lord Melbourne yes. or to whoever else. I think, it, I think it is more essentially about preserving Victoria's propriety rather than worrying about how Queen Mary might feel about her seeing her grandparents. Although I think that, I think it may have been in her mind. I think yes. that if she'd been, I think if she'd been in two minds about including it, then she probably would have thought, and I don't want to offend the queen um mm. but i but i do think it is more about her mother and that that essentially is has been her maxim throughout that mm -hmm. things are either excluded because they're too tedious um or because because it shows not necessarily victoria in a bad light but shows other people in a bad light, you know other members of the royal family in a bad light and doesn't want to that to reflect badly yeah, yeah. on on victoria for having uh, made uh, that. I, I must say i understand that because obviously for us as historians royal historians you know the history is everything but these are people's family and if i were not that with the greatest respect to my beloved mother i can't imagine her diaries and as far as i know she never kept one in her life but i can't imagine they'd be a huge amount of interest to the public but if i was tasked with editing her diaries i i would want some stuff just to be for her and also some stuff that to us does not appear sensitive like i'd be a bit of a grumble about your aunt and uncle with a friend um when it's not particularly not really dissing them even is she in in a different time you know taking a family matter and discussing it outside the family or being royalty and discussing it with a non-royal even the prime minister and even a viscount that's a much bigger thing culturally uh to generations gone by than it would be to us so you can see why that's sensitive enough for princess beatrice to remove i also think with i, I get the conspiracy theories around there must be some great dark secret that queen Vic that beatrice is hiding but all i would say is despite all the all the 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 pages and pages and pages that beatrice removes if her priority was to not make her mother look bad because her mother was being 
unkindly rude about people knowing victoria as we do i could see that taking up a lot of paper (laughs) (laughs) but uh, yes and and, i mean victoria's instructions have been to modify passages which were not fit for preservation so (laughs) what does that mean that sounds very sinister doesn't it yes it does it does um I mean, the Royal Archives themselves describe, because they, they've all been digitised and they're available, and I would encourage anybody who's interested to go and, and look at the journals themselves. Uh, they describe it as anything that was too slight to be of interest, so therefore de- uh, omitting a whole yeah. day, as well as passages that thought might offend other family members. Um, and so that that's one thing. Um, but I think as well that it's more to do with the fact that... You know, it is fair to say that Victoria is still critical of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, Beatrice yeah. doesn't necessarily show her mother always in a favourable light. Um, mm-hmm. And although, yes, we can, I mean, if you take only less than a year after uh, after the coronation, there's the Flora Hastings affair. Of course. And so explain people, Some people might not know what that is. So yeah. Explain what so that is. Lady Flora Hastings was a lady-in-waiting to the Duchess of Kent. Mm. Um, and there was certainly no, and, be, and she had been a part, an active participant in the Kensington system right. when Victoria was um, a child and was, you know, it was very tightly controlled by her mother. So Victoria is not going to be sympathetic to her. No, Victoria is not sympathetic to her. And there's also a political dimension as well, because um, by this time, Lord Melbourne's still prime minister, mm-hmm. but um, you know, his majority is 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 not you know his majority is, is waning um mm. and uh, lady flora belongs to a very prominent tory oh family. and melbourne's a wig, wig of course and melbourne's a wig and so therefore there, there's the political dimension and um and it happens at the same time as the as the it, it unfurls at the same time as the bedchamber incident so okay. then robert peel becomes uh prime minister uh, and he instructs uh, Victoria that she has to remove the ladies of her household who are who are married to prominent Tories. Victoria refuses to do this, uh, and so the two sort of feed on each other. Uh, so what happens with Lady Flora Hastings is that she uh, she goes to her family are uh, live in Scotland, and she goes up to spend Christmas and New Year with them in Christmas eighteen thirty eight. Uh, early 1839, she shares a carriage back with uh, Sir John Conroy, who was the Duchess of Kent's comptroller. And mm-hmm. uh, and again, um, it's very difficult. We don't want to go too much into using the the language of today to describe yes. that relationship. I know we discussed this when we were talking about Catherine of Aragon and yes. Fray Diego, but there does seem to be a controlling aspect to this. He has control of her finances. Yeah. And she is the, the Duchess of Kent. While we don't want to describe her as, a, as a, a stupid or naive woman, she does allow a certain level of control. She she gives him a level of control, but also she's a, a vulnerable woman, isn't she? Vulnerable. Because well, she I mean, she, she left, lost her husband exactly with a young lost her child. Husband, uh, where uh, when Victoria was less than a, uh, Princess mm. Victoria was less than a year old, uh, her father dies. Uh, and so, and also, she doesn't have her other children with her either, because mm. um, Prince Charles has has gone back to to Germany, where he's you know uh, prince, and Princess Theodore marries as as well, you know, not stupidly early, but you know she she again mm. has has left. So by this time, and the Duchess of Kent has very little to do with the other members of the of the mm. royal family. They she doesn't trust them. Terms. Doesn't trust them, and so therefore she feels that. Conroy is the only person that she, the mm. only other adult that she can trust, um, and so 
you know, he does have a, a degree of control over her, which I think one considered to be unhealthy. And so that, so, and of course, um, he had at one point attempted to get um, Victoria to sign papers to um, yeah. to give him control over her finances, to give him positions at court when she becomes queen, and, so, and to sign uh, a paper that uh, names the Duchess of Kent regent, even in the event of Victoria yeah. being 18, mm. because she is too uh, too naive to uh, to rule under uh, under her uh, you know, mm. in her own name under her own right. Uh, and most of that's cut out of Beatrice's version, interestingly. It is, but we but it does survive. Yes, and you know, a lot of that I, I think is is again, and it, that's questionable why it's been left out really because that wouldn't show Queen Victoria in a bad light. But it's probably because it doesn't show the Duchess of Kent in a good light. Yes. And it's and so, airing a very internal family matter publicly. I think yeah. that's part of it. And I think, I, you know, and I've got some, and, and, you know, as you've said, while that is frustrating because we want mm. to know what happened, at the same time, I think that I, if that had been my family, I wouldn't necessarily want other people to. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've lost both my parents now and, and I, there are certain things that I mean. My parents were, were you know, both good people, looked after me and everything. But mm. there are certain things, you know, certain arguments you may have had, certain things that they may have said or done that you wouldn't like them to talk about because it would mm. be disloyal. And so mm. we can understand why why that happens. So anyway, back to back to Lady Flora Hastings. So she has come yes. back from Scotland in the same carriage as Sir John Conroy, and a few weeks or possibly just a couple of months later, her abdomen appears to be quite swollen. Mm. And it, Victoria phrases this in her journal in a very delicate way, that it is brought to her attention by another person. Now, this is, we uh, we think she's Baroness Lateson, her, her former yes, governor. Yes, yes, yes. Who, who uh, is now in control of the royal household, um, who has brought this to Victoria's attention. And she, and the belief is that she is, we would, they wouldn't use such a vulgar word as pregnant in those days, that she's with child. And, Victoria says that she wouldn't say who she believes is responsible, but the initials of the person will be at the top of the page. And of course, they are JC. So we can imagine who that is, John Conroy. Right. And so that leads to a great scandal uh, throughout the court, and, and Lady Flora is has to then undergo a medical examination, which is inconclusive because they say that although she appears to still be Virgo intacta, they can't mm. rule out the fact that she may be expecting a child. Right. So, <laughs> so it's, you know, that, that seems a sort of catch-all belt and braces approach of um, we, you know, um, we think we think that this is the case, but however, we may be wrong. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but of course, it turns out tragically that she's not with child and she she's in fact suffering from cancer now it's mm. very often said to be liver cancer but that may we're not certain whether that is actually the the primary site or whether that's uh secondaries that have spread to her liver but anyway she she dies then in um in 1839 in summer 1839 and victoria goes to see her just before she dies to make sure that she has everything that she wants and is comfortable and we can't imagine that that was a very comfortable mm, mm, um, encounter for either of them um but you know that there are mentions of that in uh, in the diary in the journals. You know, it's questionable. We don't know the extent to which they've been excised, but there are mentions of it, and so we. So therefore, I think it is fair to say that Beatrice doesn't always paint her mother in the best light. Certain mm. things have been preserved, 
although perhaps not in the same level of detail that they might have been. Yes, yes. And and, and maybe maybe Beatrice did have some sense of history and think, well, even if her mother doesn't isn't sparkling in this. And I don't think Beatrice was naive as to who her mother was. No, uh, no. So I think yeah, she probably recognised some of that had to be preserved, but where it was an internal matter rather than an issue with historical significance, perhaps she she sharpened her pencil a little bit too much with her corrections. So looking at then what we learn about Victoria's own coronation, I mean, this is Beatrice leaves in a fair bit of Victoria's criticisms about her own big day, doesn't she? She does. I mean, I mean, the one that that I find quite amusing is that at the ceremony, it's it's the right of the Bishop of Durham to um, to accompany the monarch. And as we we said, Victoria only went to the Abbey the day before. Um, Mm. And she's certainly not very complimentary about about him because she is at her side during the ceremony and during the journal entry. She she describes to Lord Melbourne that he's rather ma- that he's remarkably maladroit uh, because he could never tell her what was due to take place when <laughs> it should have been. What does maladroit mean? It means you know it's funny you said because um, I I did I was I did an interview on the radio um, a couple of weeks ago about the preparations for this coronation I, and I, I used that as an example actually and nobody said anything at the time the presenter never said anything at the time and then after I'd finished they went to the travel and the travel presenter said. Well, what does that word mean that he used? <laughs> it means that it means um, quite naive and not really knowing what's happening. Oh, okay, right, right. Which sounds like that word applied to pretty much everyone involved in the coronation. It does. It does. Although Victor, you know, as I say, I think that he comes out for particular criticism because Victoria ex- Victoria has very little idea of what's happening, and I think she expects that somebody will tell her. So she turns to the Bishop of Durham and says, "What is to happen next?" my lord bishop um mm. and he can't tell her uh, or right. you know he shows her a point in the in the order of service and it, they're not there yet or you know uh, and so that's why he they they she's not happy um with the, she expects high standards she doesn't expect she's not putting the preparation herself but she expects much higher standards from the other from the other right. officials that are there. and this... is, is entirely unfair given that they given that it was their role to organise the coronation. But, you know, I still think it is a little bit rich from somebody who has put in very little effort. So. Well, this is it, because you wouldn't really expect the bishop to be the master of ceremonies, would you, when you consider the offices of Chamberlain and other things that would be involved in that kind of day? Not that she's probably very familiar with how it works, but, I mean, she should, shouldn't she? She should have, she should have gone into it knowing what she was going to be doing. You, you would have thought so. You would have thought so, even though she hadn't gone to the last coronation, we have to remember. And that was, you know, we've right. just been talking about the Duchess of Kent and her relationship with other members of the royal family. She doesn't trust them. Um, and so that means that she doesn't go to mm. uh, William IV and Queen Adelaide's coronation. Uh, but she does mention in her journal that uh, that her sister, Princess Theodora, uh, did attend the coronation of George IV, although Victoria was only two years old at the time, so she would have been too right. young. So, yeah, she was she was kept away from William IV's coronation. Although we were just talking about Duke and Justin of Cambridge, mm. their eldest daughter, Princess Augusta, um, yep. who was who was Queen Mary's um, aunt Augusta, who is um, who we might remember. You know the um, pearl and diamond tiara that uh, the Princess of Wales is now wearing was worn by Diana, Princess of Wales. Right, right. Um, that's people often refer to that as the Cambridge lovers' knot tiara. It's not. It's Queen Mary. It's a copy. Uh, that came oh. of the Cambridge Lovers Not Tiara, and that belonged to to Aunt Augusta, uh, who was right. um, Augusta of Cambridge, became Grand Duchess of Mecklenburg Straits. 
-hmm. And so, but she went to, and she's a few years younger than Victoria, not much younger than Victoria, but a few years younger than Victoria. Mm -hmm. uh, but she went to William IV's coronation. So one can imagine that that was a right. Okay. So it's not just that Victoria's too young. No, it's not just that she's too young, uh, because as we say, Augusta is a bit younger. And also, while just on uh, just on a point about the um, uh, Victoria's journals and things that are said about members of the royal family, although yes, Beatrice has edited the journals very uh, <laughs> tightly where it comes mm. to members of the royal family, uh, we do actually have preserved in other sources uh, some of her thoughts. So the correspondence between Victoria and the Princess Royal mm -hmm. um, has been maintained and has been. Uh, edited and published over several years mm -hmm. well in that you know one person that comes in for particular criticism is augusta of cambridge uh the grand uh, became grand duchess of mecklenburg Australia. she's she's right. who is seen as as quite flighty and gossipy um in the in the letters that uh, victoria sends to uh, the princess or crown princess of germany to the issues at this point so although if you take the journals in isolation yes you you may not get the full rounded mm, picture of victoria mm. and her character when you take that into account and remember that the princess royal married in 1858 mm. and they kept their correspondence right up until both of them died in 1901 uh, and it was pretty much every day wasn't it it was well not quite yes well again almost every day but victoria was actually very um strict with vicky about how you know she would write you know you should write two or three times a week and send this by special messenger and uh, you know all of this would be but then um it would be she would send extra letters and she would expect a reply and and she would begin a letter with i still have not had a reply to my last letter of this thing <laughs> and so uh, you, one can imagine that she was a very demanding mother when it came to um, yeah to the devotion of her children. Uh, and we, of course, we talk about Beatrice, especially because Victoria, uh, Beatrice was the one that stayed at home. And mm -hmm. it was not uncommon in Victorian times to have one unmarried daughter to stay mm -hmm. at home, mm -hmm. become the maiden aunt. Um, but of course, Beatrice does eventually marry and Victoria's not happy about this. Although right. when they do then marry, uh, she loves Henry of Battenberg like mm. a son. And, you know, and, and their children are brought up at court. Mm. Uh, and so it, it's not, it's not an unhappy marriage mm. once it happens, but Victoria hates the idea of yes. pure Beatrice being being taken well, by I her. I think they marry on condition that they stay. Yes. It was yes. Beatrice stays with her mother, yes. essentially, doesn't she? Yes. Yes. Um, but she seems no less demanding with her with her other children, with her older children. Mm. Um, and mm. certainly yeah, in the Vicky doesn't even escape going all the way to Germany. No, Vicky goes to Germany and Vicky goes to Germany when she's only 17 as well. Yeah. You know, she, and, and she's the only one of them to marry during Albert's lifetime. And she's really the only one that makes a grand match because yes. she marries the, the crown prince of Germany or crown prince of Prussia is at this point because yes um well he's not actually crown prince his father is is um crown prince at this point because William the fourth is uh Friedrich William the fourth is childless yes. uh, and so his father is the is the heir um and so he's the next heir but he does become crown prince within what, the three years of their marriage yeah um and so, but that's the only sort of so people talk about, um, you know, arranged marriages in uh, of Victoria's children. Or so I, I mean, I, I'm a bit less, I'm a bit more relaxed about that, really, because I think that's the only one, even though that was arranged, it was it was still a real love match between Vicky and Fritz. Um, but, you know, the others, they did have actually a, a wider degree of choice about their spouses than you might imagine. They weren't, they weren't yes. forced, you must marry this person. And they weren't actually grand alliances, most of them. Because they were most of them not, no. 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 Only really the two oldest girls fitted that sort of foreign princess marry into a into a grand family. And 
all, all that stuff. I mean, a I lot mean, even of even Louis of Hess. I mean, you know, once while this is a, a, a grand family, it's not it's not the same, you know, to the same degree of, of Vicky's marriage no, to, no. to Fritz, who, who's because Prussia is obviously the greatest power in Germany. And, and mm-hmm. when German unification comes, obviously he's then, um, well, tragically doesn't stay king for, for or emperor for very long. But um, but even so, you know, it's it's thought that that would be a grand match. He would be a, a great leader in the world stage. When Alice marries Louis of Hesse, that's, you know, he he is, you know, he has a, a, a duchy, but it's it's not mm-hmm. on the same scale. And of course, the the others, um, I mean, Helena marries um, Christian of Schleswig-Holstein. You know, he's a prince without without any land. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, that's why they live. That's why they make their home at Windsor, which is convenient for Victoria. Mm-hmm. By this time. Uh, and of course, Louise marries um, the Marquis of Lorne, later Duke of Argyll. Mm-hmm. So she's the only one to marry uh, a British subject. Yes. So th- they're not actually that grand alliances. In I, the I think for Victoria, the priority was more which husbands keep the daughters close. Yes. Victoria, I think, in that sense, was that sort of mother. She was, yes, she was loving, but she was, I'm going to love them and keep them close so they can do what they need to do for me. Yes. So, yeah, absolutely, with and the exception even, of yeah, the first two. And girls. as the correspondence with Vicky shows, even though she, even though Vicky's well in Germany, she's still under her mother's. Mm. Not con- control is not the right word, but under her mother's influence, certainly, and doesn't yeah. want to do anything which will upset or offend her mother. Um, it, 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 there's this very sort of relationship of of wanting her mother's approval mm. um but not being afraid to do things that her mother won't like but but being very apologetic when she does mm. i think is is how i would sum all of that up mm. um so anyway back back to, we have to go back to the coronation i suppose um so yeah, the uh we've talked about the, the bishop of durham being remarkably maladroit but he's not the only member of the clergy who comes in for criticism yes um, so because, i was gonna say if the bishop of durham is catastrophe number one what's yes. catastrophe number two well the archbishop of canterbury is, is is the one who the archbishop ought to have delivered the orb to me but i'd already got it and he as usual was so confused and puzzled knew nothing and went away she writes so what would that have looked like him just sort of walking up to going where's the orb oh where's the orb oh, oh you've got it you've got it i mean how how does that how does that even we don't work? know exactly how that happened so it could have been like that or it could have been that he read out the words you know madam i present the orb unto you or you know words that effect. Like. i don't actually have a, a copy of the words in front of me um but then realizing that it wasn't there it was actually it was already in her hand i mean so, i wonder uh, i wonder whether right this is speculation now rather than some new theory that we should publish but how much is victoria letting herself off the hook has she somehow picked up the orb when she wasn't meant to have it well that's what we're therefore... not sure of. we don't know whether she's taken it or whether she's been given it but she already she only writes that she already has it she doesn't <laughs> i think she took it i think she just but went having said that I, I would have thought no but because they're brought in procession i don't know whether she's just taken it early <laughs> or whether because so. really it should have been presented to her so I'm, I'm not so sure that how likely that would have been because because if she's seated in the throne it wouldn't have been easy for her to go and, and reach around and get it i would have thought but again yeah. that's only my speculation no I, you're I right i mean you're, you're right i mean could it could be unless i'm not i'm trying to and in a sense we might know a little bit more as we see how things play out um at, at at Charles's coronation, but whether it's something like the orb is presented to the throne, then the bishop's meant to come up, take it, bow, you, you know, and hand it to her. So he sort of takes it off the throne 
off the cushion or whatever it's yes, on. Yes. I assume it's on a cushion, is it? Probably. Um, and but she just grabs, you know, I don't know. I just want, I just Possibly. wonder whether Victoria's excusing herself a little bit here. Um, well, I think it's fair to say that we don't know, although it wouldn't be surprising if she had. I agree. I agree. And it also wouldn't be surprising if she either didn't notice she'd made a mistake or she decided not to reiterate the fact she'd made the mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, yes. And not that she's exactly putting the blame on somebody else, because she doesn't say that he'd given it to her at the wrong time. Just that he he attempted to give it to her, but she already had it. So, yeah, we can we, we might be playing around the semantics, but I think I think you've got a fair point there. Uh, definitely. Um, and it goes back to the thing you were saying earlier about there is some validity in her saying these guys really should have known what they were doing yeah. and it's not really on me but the problem is you, you're the queen you're the you're a power you're the most powerful person in the room so if you make a mistake people just have to work around you. there's not a lot they can do if you go somewhere at the wrong time or take something at the wrong time so actually yes it is and, and this is what immaturity doesn't know but age brings with you which is that if you're a leader and you've got that power you've got to you've got to take your responsibility more seriously, not less seriously. Mm, mm, mm. I suppose uh, it's, uh, it's again, a really tantalising question. Does Victoria ever really grow in that type of maturity? I'm not entirely sure that she does. She, she must do to a degree, but I think that there's always, even in her older age, there is that sort of slight degree of naivety that, you know, she can turn up and things will happen and, and whatever. Um mm. I might be being unfair and that I've not got examples to cite to be able but to... No, but she supposedly famously them. said, what matters is not what people think of me, but what I think of them. Probably true, but mm. there's mm. A, a sense to which... And I, I sometimes think with Victoria, her natural authority perhaps comes from quite an ignorant naivety. And, yes. and it kind of works for her. Yes. Because um, in many ways, she's... A great she's remembered as a greater queen than she deserves to be given credit for being perhaps yes, yes. well no i think that's i think that's entirely fair because you know when you know when i was at school and you learned about queen victoria mm. and and the industrial revolution and and the growth of the the empire and all of that and so it's all seen as happening yeah. under victoria's aegis uh, and yet you know, when you find out more about Victoria, you you learn that she was actually quite a flawed individual. Mm. Um, not that I'm criticising her for that. We're all flawed individuals, but you know the the extent to which she relied. Okay, you know, she was very strong-willed as a young woman. Mm. Then when she married Albert, she she seems to be subsumed into his German logic. Mm. Uh, and way of thinking uh, and she relies on it on him an awful lot and then of course when Albert dies she then withdraws for years and mm. you know people are talking now about you know is the monarchy safe under King Charles and, and mm. the number of people who are protesting well you know that's nothing to the the protests that there were in the in the early of 18th course when when she had withdrawn from public life altogether and you know the questions about the cost of the monarchy now again i think are nothing to the the questions that were yeah. quite rightly being put on on victoria at that stage because she's refusing to appear in public and this is i think people were initially very sympathetic to her when albert dies because albert dies only 42 she's yes. you know she's the same age it's it seems very tragic they've still got very young children i mean beatrice is only how old is Beatrice at this point? Four years old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it is very sad and very tragic that Albert dies. But, you know, she withdraws for years and years. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, 
she very reluctantly opens Parliament uh, a couple yeah. of times in the 1860s. And then even into the 1870s, we, you know, we she's still very, very rarely seen. You know, she goes to St Paul's Cathedral for the Thanksgiving service um, right. when the Prince of Wales um, recovers from typhoid. Uh, and she she makes a couple of, you know, she she opens um, the, the Royal Albert Hall, for example, but, but mm. still very few appearances but then by the time of her you know her golden jubilee and certainly a diamond jubilee again this this sort of myth has grown of, of her being a great queen now that's not to say she wasn't um she was neglecting her duties because she was seeing her ministers reading state papers mm-hmm. all of that you know she was doing all of the desk work but she wasn't she wasn't yes, you know, she, she wasn't lazy in the way people think of her no lazy. no, no i think it's quite hyperactive with the letters and the diaries yes. and, and the paperwork indeed but I think that she, but she was, and you know, who am I to criticise somebody's, somebody's bereavement and somebody's somebody's depression, mental illness after after that bereavement? You know, I, I feel I would feel very uncomfortable criticising that. But but I still think it is fair to say that all of that meant that Victoria was absent um, from public life for a very long time, um, and so therefore we do imagine her being a, a greater queen and having a, a greater effect than she probably did. She because was of very course, lucky. She was very she was lucky great. with the time. And she was lucky that it really fitted Disraeli's narrative to create and unite his electoral base, to be frank, post Great Reform Acts, around a shared sense of national identity and that national identity needing a figurehead. And Queen Victoria, when you compare Elizabeth II, Elizabeth the Great, as I will always call her, who did also achieve that kind of icon status in her own lifetime, but through, and of course, she will have enjoyed luck, good and bad, during her reign, but through sheer work and a determination to keep the crown steady on the head of well, that's the, big the difference, House of Windsor. I mean, yeah. Elizabeth II was was always quoted as saying, "I have to be seen to be believed." Well, Victoria yeah. didn't believe that she had to be seen to be believed. She believed she thought that people should um, respect her regardless. That which she which made with, it even the more special when she was seen. That's that she the, could uh, withdraw to Windsor or Osborne or to Balmoral, and that people would still have as much yeah. love and respect for her whether she appeared in public or not. Whereas Elizabeth II, even in her perhaps not in the last year of her life well even the last year of her life I mean the, one of the, the the things that I I think will always remember was last summer going uh, and staying in London for the, for the Platinum Jubilee celebrations mm. and that last balcony appearance um, following the, the pageant um, because we didn't expect because I was I was watching it with a friend and we weren't expecting the Queen to be there because she'd not been well enough to go to uh, the, to the Thanksgiving service at St Paul's Cathedral, which yes, I think, as yes. which I think, uh, for somebody who always set great store by her faith and, and yes. belief in God, that would have been a, a big deal for her not to go, mm. and not to go to the Derby because, of course, you know we all know about her interest in horse racing, um, and she wasn't well enough to sit and sit through and watch the pageant. But when we saw the royal standard raised over Buckingham Palace. Mm. the excitement in the crowd you know it's like a mexican wave it was just such a thrill i'm gonna get emotional in a minute i'm still i'm still i'm still i'm still not over i know i know and um and then when the barriers opened we all ran 
um down to to get and and the sad thing was that you know because there was all the staging because there'd been the concert the night before we couldn't mm. get an unobstructed view i mean i I got my camera with me i wanted to get this photograph of the queen of the bug and of course we couldn't really get it because you've got railings in the way of course but yeah. just having her there and singing the national and that was actually i think mm, the last yeah. time we ever sang god save the queen um yeah. as god save the king and and just seeing her there it, everything just felt right it felt that it was somehow she was she was there for all of us and it was we were able to thank her and she looked quite emotional you know when i've looked mm -hmm. at it back um now is that because she knew she was ill and she you and that it would probably be the last time she ever said or was it simply the 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 war that you the sea of people because there were hundreds of thousands of people there mm -hmm. cheering for her and showing their devotion to her you know it's questionable but you know and so that for me is something that was extremely special and that I think I'll always remember. Mm. I don't think because she was somebody that I'd, I'd admired, loved, respected my whole life mm. that to, to now have that memory of being there on that day and, and being there for that moment, I think mm, is mm. that, um, that was very, very special. Um, and so I think that, you know, and, and if we believe, you know, if we can believe what's been reported since that she, she was, she was not well she wouldn't she wasn't going to be there but it was that sense of duty mm. that she should be there for that right that appearance exactly that and so that's i think what spurred her on which is which is the opposite of victoria victoria felt that people would give the show that her show her their devotion whether she turned up or not uh, she did and actually in one sense she had even less reason to be secure because this was a time when monarchies were crumbling crowns were crumbling across the world and victoria seems almost naively or i don't know stubbornly immune to that i mean maybe it is as you say she's battling with a form of depression that they wouldn't really have understood then in the same way that we would now and she just hasn't really got the wherewithal mentally to have capacity or bandwidth to work to worry about that but it were ends up working for her because that remoteness rather than being a fat old woman sat in a palace she becomes this mysterious, grand mm -hmm. um, matriarch of an empire, and yes. her face becomes associated with great imperial Britain, um, which, of course, she had no power over. You know, by certainly by the second half of her reign, there's no pretense anymore, really, that monarch is, is a political player. Monarchy is a political player. You know, after the Great Reform Act's, you know where the, where the franchise is so expanded there can there can be no real talk of that anymore but yet she becomes this icon and i'm not entirely sure how much of that is to her credit particularly as opposed to luck but that anyway we should <laughs> this is this is another good podcast for another time but we should probably get back to the coronation shouldn't we yeah so we've had two catastrophes so far and um, but Back to the regalia, because we've had the orb being given twice, oh, yes, or yeah. attempted to be given twice. Um, the ring. Oh. Very painful. Mm. Now, it's supposed to be the wedding ring of England, um, but it's the wrong size for the wedding finger. I mean, how has that, that not been checked? Well, it was made... <laughs> The reason that she has a ring is because Victoria is only 19 and she's very small. I mean, she's barely five foot tall. Mm. So she, the existing rings, which would have been used for her uncles, are too big. Yes. So therefore, she has a, a, a new ring made for her, which is not only is the, the, the ring itself small, but the, the representation of the cross 
on his smaller as well to, mm. to fit her hand better. But it's made for her little finger as opposed to her ring finger. Right, right. And there's some debate about this, whether it is actually, whether it was actually planned for her little finger or whether it was just because uh, at that time there was a difference in how they would count the fingers. So whether you count the thumb or not. So therefore you could say that... Oh, so it's a massive miscommunication in the brief. Yeah, but that was the fourth, the the little finger was in fact the fourth finger rather than the the third finger. Sorry, rather than the fifth finger. How can you not check that? This is like a big day. (laughs) Well, the problem. Also, the problem is that um, when the archbishop goes to to put the ring on the mm. finger, um, she apparently tells him, "No, it's the wrong finger." Right. Um, and then he says, "No, ma'am, it must go on the you know on on the wedding finger because it's the wedding ring of England." Whether it uses yeah. those words, it kind of makes sense. Yes. Um, and so he t- he puts it on there um, because she you know she'd actually proffered the um the the little thing and he he tells this and she apparently then demures and allows him to put it on but she does write with great pain um but then but what we do we get in charles greville's diary entry Mm. of course he's a great political diarist at the time he writes about how she had to soak her hand in iced water uh for a while afterwards to be able to remove it oh oh that's horrible i mean that is horrible Yes. But again, what kind of... There doesn't seem to be any ramifications in terms of people losing their job or anything, as far as we know, does there? After no, as far as, no, as far as we know, no. Could that be because because Victoria does realise deep down that she hadn't prepared very well herself and so that it would be unfair of her to... You know, she'd not got a great handle. Or even or even Melbourne didn't have yeah. a great... Well, we know that it's not actually down to Lord Melbourne to organise the coronation, but that's that's something we should make clear, that it's, you know, it is down to, you know, the um, you know, the Duke of Norfolk and, and to... Yes. Or the hereditary... Um, Positions uh, to arrange it. Yeah, so we know it's because not Duke of Norfolk's our marshal, yes. presumably, isn't he? Yes, um, but but of course, Lord Melbourne does take a, a great interest in the, um, and of course, he has the Queen's ear. He's the Queen's right hand. So therefore, yeah. you know, any other any other analogies that we might care to use. So therefore, I think that um, you know he doesn't seem to have a great handle on on these things either. Does he have a role in the coronation other than being a peer that will pay homage to her? No, no, no. Because prime minister's not, I believe, prime minister's not even recognised as an official office till 1905, which is after Victoria's reign, mm. which is when it gets added to the order of precedence. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. I will. I'll quote you on that. I'll say Gareth Streeter says, yeah, says 1905. The office of, yeah, because I think the prime minister is an unofficial office Yes, until that point. Yes, yes. Um, and talking of paying homage. Yes, yes. So we're getting on to catastrophe number three or four. four. How many have we had? Four. four. Well, we've had, we've had, haven't we? We've, we've already had, uh, we've just talked about the ring. Um, what do we have before that? We had... Um, we had the, the Archbishop orb. not knowing what he was doing. We had the orb, and orb, then we had the Bishop of Durham not knowing where, not knowing any, not knowing yeah. what was happening where. So, That's more like a warm-up catastrophe, isn't it? He's sort of yeah. setting the scene of catastrophe, and then three, three solid ranking catastrophes after. Yes. So, as you've already said at the coronation, we'd have the peers paying homage, yeah, um, yeah. and so they would have to climb up the steps to to the Queen and kiss her hand. Now. 
just as a, an aside, um, there's been a real debate before the coronation about mm. how the peers will pay homage, because traditionally they would have to, to kiss her cheek. Victoria doesn't want the peers kissing her cheek. No, I don't blame her. Well, no, nor do I, to be quite honest. But even so, um, it's a real break. Which, so there's been a whole debate at this yeah. coronation about who will pay homage, whether it'll only be the Prince of Wales, whether the other... Because at the in Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953, only the royal dukes kiss her hand, uh, kiss her cheek. So Prince Philip does, uh, her uncle right. Foster and her cousin, the Duke of Kent, do kiss her cheek and pay homage uh, to be a uh, liege man of life and limb. The other peers do pay homage, but they don't kiss her cheek. In it's only, it wasn't for the Elizabeth II, wasn't it? Only didn't each pick, because it just would take too long. Yes. Didn't each, yes. each, a representative each rank of, of peerage yes. was represented yes. by the highest peer in that degree. Yes. So the Duke of Norfolk for the Dukes, the, I can't remember who, which Marquess and which Earl, but the, you know, the, the really old titles were, did it, I think. Which is, yes. are, they, are they not doing that this time? They're not going to have the highest peer from each degree pay homage. Well, they're not, not as far as I'm aware, because there are only a thousand people going to attend the ceremony, we're not even going to have a sea of peers within the Abbey. So um, apparently not. Right. That's what that's it's not actually been published or hadn't been published when we recorded this, I should say, just in case it comes out. Yes, in between. yes. Yeah. But um, but it hadn't been published. And so there's been a lot of speculation that only the Prince of Wales will do that, uh, which would. But that but that's to get around our Duke's dilemma, isn't it? The Sussex and York dilemma. Oh, you had to say that, didn't you? Ooh, yes, sorry, um, sorry. very probably, very probably. It would be convenient, let's say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not only would it show a slimmed down monarchy, not only would it show a more um, meritocracy uh, within the within the ceremony, it would also get round the difficulties of those uh, members of the family who are now, shall we say, semi-detached. Mm. Um, that are not are no longer working members of the royal family, which is why again we've had all this debate about who's going to be on the balcony and who isn't. Yeah, who's going to the parish procession, who isn't? You know, all of that. Um, but in whereas, you know, in in Victoria's time, uh, as was traditional, all the peers would pay homage. Yes, to the Queen on there was still must have been a thousand at that stage. Well, I, I'm not sure how many peers there were. I'm there, not we're sure how many hundreds, are. hundreds. Yes. But so there was a, a lot anyway, so they yeah. would all pay homage individually. Um, and so they, they do not kiss her cheek, but they do kiss her hand. It's um, much better. I mean, these are old men. One old man in particular. Girl. Yeah. One old man in particular, Lord Roll, 82 years old, um, goes to climb uh, the steps to the throne um, and then he falls over. And he ro and literally rolls down the steps, and some, and and I'm not laughing because he's rolled down. There is actually. Some... I am a bit. Is that bad? I'm a no. little bit laughing because he... no, that that would be unfair. Yes, but kind. But some people, because his name is Roll, uh, some <laughs> some some of the um, American uh, tourists. I'm not sure at the time or whether it's that list, but they assume that it's an old English custom that <laughs> that because his name is Roll, that that is is his is position to to roll down the steps oh um, my god like is that how you english do it is that why lord roll has to roll that was a brilliant american accent wasn't it do you know it was as though you were in kentucky or chicago well can i just say one thing most of the followers of royal history geeks are american and that was not intended as that was meant in good fun because i love i love always loved americans i always 
Um, and I've always appreciated the engagement of Americans in British royal history, because quite frankly, it wouldn't be doable without them. And there, one thing I will say, can I just say one thing? People I've often seen on royal and history, Facebook, was, oh, I bet you're American because you don't even know what you're talking about. I'm sorry, the Americans on my page are among the most knowledgeable people I have ever met. And I haven't met them, you know what I mean, about British and English royal history. So God bless America. That's what I say. God bless America after that dodgy accent. Yeah, um, sorry about the accent, but I'm working <laughs> on it. I shouldn't really say that because mine would be no better. It's just that This is an Australian accent. <laughs> is that I, better? I, I'm just wise enough not to attempt it. I yeah, think. yeah um so anyway yeah some the some people do think that lord roller's done this deliberately um but victoria she has a kind heart if nothing else because she does she stands up to help him to his feet and he goes back and does it again so yeah we mm. can't be too harsh on her no and i'm just trying to think about the protocol of that because i don't think victoria was as she gets older certainly she loses that a little bit which of her prime ministers was it she said oh you look so uncomfortable stood up at your age but uh, it's, what a shame i can't ask you to sit or something was that or something. not gladstone because she didn't get on with him i don't know that it was gladstone actually no um because um, i think but, she wouldn't even have expressed the sympathy with gladstone well i i'm not sure but certainly certainly disraeli wasn't allowed to sit in her presence wasn't he who was he i, I believe so i don't quote me on that i might be i don't wrong know now, but I, I, don't I believe know. disraeli was the uh the um earl of derby Possibly. Was I, I was thinking... Disraeli was the Earl of Derby, wasn't he? No, um, Bickensfield. That's it. Yes, of yeah. course. But Earl Lord Derby had been Prime Minister. Yes, yes, yes. In the reign. Um, and then, of course, we had Lord Salisbury, who she was quite close to, to at the end mm. of her reign. Um, yeah. You know, the, the Bob of Bob's your uncle. And, yeah, he was um, there for years, wasn't he? Yes. And and in different... And um, with several breaks in between. Right, right, right. Because he was the yeah. longest serving... Like Maggie was the longest serving prime minister since him, I think. But his his were not all in one consecutive term. No, but um, I think he did have quite a long stretch. He did have he did have a long stretch. He did have a long stretch. But he was he was out of office, but remained leader of the opposition. Then then came yes. back um, as opposed to yeah. bit Harold well, Wilson. I, actually, I've said he was leader of the opposition. I'm not actually certain that that he would have been at that point. Um, yeah. But he he certainly did become prime minister again and and of course we have to remember that it becomes less and less likely um or, or less and less usual to have uh, a prime minister in the lords he's the, the last one time. isn't he in his as far as i'm aware although we ne although there was um in the second world War, we nearly had lord halifax as opposed to churchill or with lord right. halifax was put forward right, right, as, a, right. as a credible and um who else um well anthony eden leaves the lords to return to go to the commons to become prime minister and disclaims his earldom no um that was uh douglas hume yes of course it was douglas yes. hume yeah. i mean anthony eden no he, he comes he's given an earldom on his retirement yeah no you're completely right of course it was yes it was earl of earl of hume becomes alec douglas hume and later goes back to the lords as lord hume Yes. yes, you're completely right. Of but course, of course he's right. given. But of course, because he's already renounced his period, he has to be given a life period. Yes, yes, which is all he needs because his his lad still is still a. Well, he could, because even though he has um he has renounced the period, doesn't mean that he's renounced it for his descendants. No, peers that disclaim the hereditary peerage do not. Yes, they you're absolutely right. They renounce it above themselves, and not to their descendants. No, and that's why if he had still been alive at the time of the Lords Reform in 1999, he would have been. 
would still have been allowed to sit because his his period because his because of his life period, his life in, the period same yeah, way, yeah. in the same way that uh lord snowden even though that was an hereditary period but it, it was considered that if your period was if that was the first creation of that period you were the well they did period. a sneaky thing with that so with this is a real tangent but when they got rid of the hereditaries from the laws that did technically apply to the hereditaries of the first creation like lord snowden and of course like charles like andrew like all the royal peers but they were all offered a life peerage as well and they took so, yes. and all the royal dukes turned it down yes um but lord snowden didn't and there's like right. That's kind of really cheeky, Lord Snowden. Because it kind you, of is. I've got your then... for marrying Princess Margaret, not for having done mm. anything. And well, it, it kind of is. But then it, it, I suppose one could argue that by that time, um, because he and Margaret, of course, had divorced, but he was not. He was no longer a member of the royal family associated with that, the throne. That so. is true. I don't think there. I don't think there was a compromise in terms of his his compromise constitutionally. I agree, but I just think you were given the earldom because you married into the British royal family. Mm. So why would you... And that's why you had your seat in the House of Lords, which you should probably never have taken your seat in the House of Lords. So why accept the offer of a, a life period? But anyway, yeah. he had... Well, that's a debate a for another day, because, of course, he didn't have the period when he married Margaret. That came a bit yeah, later. Before so... the kids. Before yes, the kids. Yeah, yeah, so, so that they wouldn't Yes, he took have... it so they could be titled. Yeah. Yes, so they wouldn't have children without titles. But then, of course, very interesting, only a couple of years later... Princess Alexandra marries Angus Ogilvy and he yeah. refuses an earldom and her children are the first to be untitled. The um, first of a princess. Yes, of course, she, yeah. she's their, their great-grandchildren of a sovereign rather than grandchildren yes. of a sovereign. And Anne is the real trailblazer, I would say, mm. in terms of in terms, in terms terms of that. But yes, we have definitely gone off on a tangent, haven't we? But so Lord uh, Melbourne, we were saying, we're, we're trying to work out how culpable he is for these catastrophes. And I think we're basically saying he's not. Not really. Um, he 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 is, in as much as um, he has, you know, they've made a lot of the decisions in cabinet. So cabinet decides when the date of the coronation is. Although that, I mean, that is a real jamboree in itself. They've had, as we said, the coronation takes place a year after Victoria's accession, and yes, it's only in April that they decide when the date is. And that is at the third attempt because they mm. originally, sorry, in 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 because in March. Um, they decide that the original choice for the coronation is going to be either the 25th or the 26th of June. Um, but then the following week, the Duke of Cambridge comes to see it to ask if it can be changed to the 25th, because that would be uh, the anniversary of the Battle of Victoria, mm, mm, mm. Um, which would be you know, quite appropriate for Victoria's coronation. But the Queen and Lord Melbourne yeah. say it's too close to the anniversary of the accession because that would be... Um, because William the Fourth had died the year previously on the twentieth yes. of June, but that is actually when it happens, though. Well, it, yes. Well, because the um, also the anniversary of George the Fourth's death is the twenty sixth of June. Right. So it's only on the the twenty fifth of April, two months later, that they do actually decide on the actual date. So it's mm. you know it, it's gone through several stages and, and about a month a month of negotiations before they actually reach the date in which the coronation is due to take place, um, and so that was that was Melbourne and cabinet and it was also the cabinet that had discussed whether um, the you know how the peers were going to pay their homage whether they would kiss the cheek or not. right. Because uh, that's, so that's sort of a political thing, isn't it? I mean, these. I was thinking about this as we, because obviously we've talked about 
um, when we talked about Henry VIII and Henry VII's coronations, which is probably more my my comfort zone, they're they're very important political occasions because they are symbolic of the people that the people performing various roles will be symbolic of the power base of that reign and therefore the more you could associate your family with it the better this that's less true here of course we're 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 in a we're in an emerging democracy i guess is what you'd call but it's partly because true though isn't it yeah it's partly because it's an emerging democracy and partly because those positions are hereditary ones and so the because we have because we have a very binary political system by this point between the Whigs and the tories Mm. if you were you know, and Lord Melbourne is a Whig, and, and Victoria, you know, is very thinly disguised as a as a Whig yes. sympathiser. Melbourne's not a very good Whig, though, is he? Well, <laughs> you probably know more about that than I would, but um, but I yes, I think that's fair to say. But but Victoria, is, sorry, but Victoria is is uh, you know is is very much associated with Melbourne, um, mm. and is very sympathetic to to his views, um, and so therefore, if you were on the wrong side of the of that political divide, even if you had an hereditary office, you weren't necessarily within the inner circle. You weren't part of the mm. charmed inner circle. You weren't necessarily included in all the. You you might be at those events because you were. Uh, because your hereditary office demanded it, but you weren't necessarily brought into the confidence of the Queen or the Prime Minister or, yeah. or whoever. So, so there's so it's partly because of that emerging democracy and partly because of the hereditary principle. Whereas earlier, um, the hereditary principle wasn't necessarily adhered to as stringently. Um, people were attainted. Um, people weren't necessarily mm. able to keep their positions, and they were yeah. you know, they were yeah. given elsewhere to court favourites so but by Victoria's reign that's not really happening Mm. you had people you know you had peerages created and and they would may well be for people who are sympathetic to the queen or to the prime minister of the time Mm. but they're not they're not then going on to lead to to be as actively involved in the in the ceremonial or the political aspects of the reign because of the emerging democracy um and after the great reform uh, yes, you know, you know there is a greater opening up of the franchise, and so the Commons has more power than the Lords by this stage. So, if yes. you yeah. if you are holders of these the you know the hereditary um, positions, you weren't necessarily going to have any real power because of it any longer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, government by this stage is more complicated. So, whereas if you're in late medieval and, and to a lesser extent, but still quite an extent, Tudor. It's much more about you just need powerful people who often by right of heritage and affinity and blood in a particular region of the country command the loyalty, which means you could enforce the king's law adequately there because of who you are rather than what you do. That's not that's very important, but it's not very developed statecraft. Whereas by the time you're in Georgia and Victorian England, government's a lot more tricky. You need people with good brains and with good abilities and good skills which is going to lend itself to more of a meritocracy i know we're not talking meritocracy proper we're still talking meritocracy within a very small class but you still yeah. see in cream rise more than and you did start to see it much more in the tudors of course and you've always seen a bit of it during history but this is happening much much more now by this stage in, in government well, it's becoming it's becoming the 
the norm rather than the exception mm. um yeah and and i think it is i think it is still relevant to say that of course while the franchise was increased it, it is still fairly limited to what how we would recognize it today but nevertheless yeah and for another but, 20 years it is as well you know yes. Yes, but nevertheless, it, it has been opened up significantly to what it had been previously. So therefore, you know, you are seeing less influence um, to around on the on the throne and on the political. So, so what is that. the point of the coronation then at this point? Because it's not Elizabeth II televised and let the Commonwealth watch. But no, but it is getting towards that because you have to remember that in, in the 1830s, you'd had the expansion of the railways. So there were special excursion trains that were running from places like Manchester and, and Birmingham into London for people to be able to see the coronation procession. Uh, and so Victoria does write about uh, the number of people that came out to see her. So that has significantly widened it than it would have been previously, because previously you would really have had to have lived in or just around London to have been able to, to see it. If you were if you were an ordinary person. Um, now, admittedly, this is this is just before railway mania, before the great expansion of the railways. Yeah. But nevertheless, you do have the railways bringing people into London to be able to see, uh, to be able to see the coronation and the procession. So, and of course, you now have the, um, you know, you have mass media in that you have the newspapers, um, and you you do get a sense that people are that the public are being more included and being involved in mm. uh, in the coronation than had been previously. So even though, yes, it's not mass media to the degree that would have been in 1953 and certainly not today, it is going towards that. Um, it's significantly wider in the number of people that we see, even than William IV's only mm. seven years. Mm. So in a sense, if we say coronations have always been a PR exercise in part, which is not to say they're there or they were, in a sense, they've kept that same role because... The coronation of, say, Henry VII had to appeal to the political class. <laughs> you could pretty much get the political class in a room. Yes. Um, not quite, not quite, but to a, to a large extent. Victoria is still appealing to the political class in the sense of not the political class, but people that have some increasing political involvement, which is a wider franchise. But she's even going beyond that at this stage. and But she's anticipating not consciously of course but she's anticipating what will happen during her reign in terms yes. of the importance yes. of the public as political determiners yeah, um yeah. i mean i'm oversimplifying hugely because you know who who knows a great debate as to to what stage you know to what stage people truly felt enfranchised even once they had the vote but I think there's something poetic. Well, I mean, you, you could, yes. And, and, but I think that as well, having previously said that Victoria expected the expected people to, to like her and be respectful of her, um, whether, you know, whether she appeared in public or not, I think that that's, while that is, is true and I stand by that, I think that she also does have a great sense that when she is cheered by people, she is humbled by it and that you see that throughout mm. her reign. And so I think that she, because she writes about it on Coronation Day, but she, you know, much later she writes about it at the time, the Golden Jubilee, the Diamond Jubilee, mm. about the, the thousands of people that turn out to, to see her, cheer her, sing the national anthem, all of those things. She is, she, she does seem genuinely surprised and humbled that people mm. respect her, her as a, as an individual rather than just have respect yeah. for the throne. Mm. So I think that she is mindful. Of, even though she doesn't appear in public for a lot of her reign, 
uh, and the reasons for it but but she's mindful that that when she does people will will cheer her will see her mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. but it, but it's because they have some sort of connection with her and admire and respect her rather than just because she's of course. The queen. yeah because you know she does she does it's fair to say that she does get a fair share of boos and and hisses at mm. various times you know we've talked about and gunshots <laughs> <laughs> yes but you know in uh you know at royal ascot during the time of the flora hastings affair she's booed mm. and hissed quite loudly by um by weak sympathizers uh sorry by, by because of yeah. the way in which she's treated uh, Thor, uh flora hastings uh, yeah. and you know later on when there has been you know those the a Republican movement uh, builds momentum mm. after Albert's death. When she does appear again, she she is sometimes booed, um, and of course there's those attempts on her life as well. So let's not forget that she would be aware of the the sense of danger. Yes, um, but essentially we do still get the impression that she appreciates the fact that when these things are organised, she is there and she she does receive the the warmth and affection mm-hmm. of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, but talking of warmth and affection. Mm. Um, it's a bit of a moot point um, to discuss um, whether members of the royal family like each other much or not on Coronation Day. Um, <laughs> and there's certainly been a lot of speculation about mm. that in this current coronation. Um, but while we don't, we, we talked a bit earlier about the relationship between Victoria and her mother. Yes. Now, there's nothing in the journals that says that there's any bad feeling between them. Mm. But I think we can infer that there is by Go what on. is not Go said. On. Well, if we look at it, uh, you know, Victoria is very, very effusive about certain other people. So take Lord Melbourne first. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know about that. that Lord M. Lord M. Dear Lord M. Dear Lord M. Um, or my good Lord M. Did you um, did you watch... Um, the Victoria series on ITV. Yes. I mean, it was yes. magical, wasn't it? And you had a very romanticised portrayal. Well, what I would say is that, um, well, they showed, oh, let's let's not get into the inaccuracies too much, but um, what <laughs> I would, you know, well, I'm terrible. I, I, I mean, if I watch anything like that with anybody, I mean, when my dad was alive, we used to watch programmes like that. Yeah. You know, he said, can you not just, can you not just watch it? Do you have to sit there and yeah, criticise everything? I know. Um, no, I do have to sit there and criticise everything. I'm sorry, I do. It's just within me. If I don't say it, it will annoy me too much. Um, but I very much, well, firstly, they didn't actually have a coronation banquet, um, as was shown there. They they did have receptions at the palace, though. Um, but, um, I mean, we don't know this, but I very much doubt, and yes, you know, the champagne would have been flown, but I very much doubt that she got quite drunk and made a pass at him in front well, of Well, no, no. But the, this is why, I mean, I love Victoria, partly because it was sort of, it came on, it sort of, it started as Downton Abbey finished, didn't it? And it sort yeah. of filled, filled that void on ITV. But for me... I, mean, so I, everything... enjoy, I want to point out, I did enjoy watching it. No, I it was, no, sure. I thought it was a lovely put together series and looked very nice but you know when you when um but i suppose the thing that that sort of got me and i did actually write a column about this at the time you know when because we talked about flora hastings and all that it showed her you know to to heighten the dramatic effect it yes. showed her having her her medical examination to prove that she wasn't pregnant mm. on the same day as the coronation when actually it happened a year later now i'm not just trying to be a pedant at that but no. but it was but it wasn't but because that happened at this, whereas the bedchamber crisis happened in the next episode, mm. and Flora Hastings already shown to be dead at this time, whereas actually the one fed the other because yes, uh, because yes. of the political um, affiliation of Flora Hastings' family, mm. 
that one fed the other. And so therefore, by killing her off in the previous episode, you you lost a lot of the, the nuance that was happening there. So I'm not just saying it to be a, a pedant, because I do realise that you no. have some degree of dramatic licence if you are putting together um, a television programme. Uh, no, I'm having a moment of empathy with you, because this is why I love Victoria, because when I, in recent years, there's been a lot on the Wars of the Roses and early Tudor and then Tudor general fiction now that's my sweet spot that's i wouldn't i wouldn't call myself an expert on anything but whatever expertise i have is in the is basically in the 15th century very early very early 16th so i just can't watch it without ruining it for everyone i'm with pointing out everything and sort of grieving that something that i think is really important is not there but because with victoria yes i know more about victoria than i think the average person does but I don't know as much as you, and I don't know as much as someone that's. No, spent I'm, a lot of time I'm certainly not an expert it. on Victoria, but I. You know, but you know more than I do, so I can a watch bit more about it. I can watch more of it, and yes, of course, I know lots of it's inaccurate, and then I know there are bits that I don't know, but will be. But it doesn't bother me the same way because it's not been my kind of life's work. Um, so that's what I loved about watching Victoria is I could relax. Yes. I must say, though, I and I know I'll sound terribly middle-aged saying this, but I don't think we make these programmes like we used to. Um, <laughs> you know, if, my absolute favourite costume... I mean, I, you know, I, I like... Uh, one of the benefits of having older parents was that my dad had watched a lot of uh, these series in the 70s. So mm. had watched Six Months of Henry VIII, Elizabeth R, Shadow of the Tower all of those and so when they were then repeated later he used to say oh you, you ought to watch this you'll like it well one of the ones that he did introduce me to was edward the seventh now edward the seventh right. i think is the most fantastic series never, i've never seen it yeah watch it honestly right. i really recommend it because and it's a bit of a misnomer calling it edward the seventh because while it is his life it begins at before he's born it begins the moment that victoria finds out she's expecting another child oh right um, and it's you know she's in the nursery with albert looking at vicky or pussy as they called her and um you know and she's and he's saying oh isn't she the most precious thing in the world and she's mm. saying no all babies are ugly and i'm going to have another and that's yeah. mm -hmm. and, um, and so you know you really get victoria's character and so that and victoria is played by annette crosby who i think is a really underrated actress she okay. went after not only for uh catherine rarigan and six months of henry VIII, but also for victoria in edward the seventh and i think okay. that, that series is is probably the the closest you'll get to an accurate portrayal of history of the time while mm. retaining the drama and retaining you know and it still being entertaining yeah, yeah. and when you look at the people that are in it i mean um victoria's uh, played by annette crosby prince albert's played by robert hardy edward the seventh is played by timothy west and um, queen alexander mm. by helen ryan um felicity kendall is vicky you know the, um, mm. john gielgud is uh disraeli michael horden is gladstone you know even you know great theatrical nights mm, mm, playing some of the the small parts in it mm, um, mm, and mm. and one for you you being an eastenders fan um <laughs> there's a cameo by lou beale and <gasps> As um, as an as uh, as an old woman uh, who lives near Sandringham, who, who asks the asks if um, Edward the Seventh and his Prince of Wales would take her would cart her basket to market because he's going mm -hmm. to she thinks he's going towards Norwich and he tells her no he's going to turn off oh and she says, oh I've come a long way he says I'll tell you what I'll give you a portrait of my mother 
and then he rides off and of course it's a, and she, she looks like, gold sovereign um so so watch <laughs> it just for that okay well i will then i will if it's got lou beale in that's you know <laughs> You, you you had me at EastEnders. You should have started there. But it does retain a certain level of accuracy that I think is, right. is more lacking in more recent dramas. Mm. And so that's that's the thing that I lament. I think that you know we, we seem to have lost the knack of retaining and yes, you know, when you watch it now, it does look rather, th- it does look a bit old fashioned. The scenes are a lot longer than you would have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the acting is not hammy, but but certainly a bit more theatrical because, you know, they they are filmed like theatre because they're filmed multi-camera, which favours the uh, the actor rather than being done, you know, as you would a film. And they're filmed yeah. in story order. So it is done differently to how it would be done now. Um, and so, yes, it might look a bit old fashioned, like upstairs, downstairs, compared compared to Downton Abbey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be considered old fashioned the way that it's shot and 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 written, but it does retain. A, you know, those older dramas do tend to have a greater level of accuracy than mm. we see in the in the in the more current ones. Yes, so, yes, I think I think that was more important for people then because the truth is, people watch historical fiction. And they do, they want to believe it at least could be true. Not necessarily that it was, but that it no. could have well, been. I mean, if you take, if you take Victoria, for example, mm. and because um, I've always liked, my dad was always interested in railways and I sort of got that from him. And so there's the, that episode where she and Albert are, are going on, um, you know, in the, you know, in a goods train, you know, mm. and, and it's all very exciting. It's the first time it's happened. Well, actually, they, you know, it's well documented that they went in, on. You know, in in I'm not sure actually it was the Royal Train then, but certainly a director's mm, saloon, mm, mm. Um, and they went um, from Paddington to Slough to go to Windsor Castle, and it you mm. know that was well documented. And the late Queen, uh, <laughs> well, she used to go between um, between London and Windsor all the time, but but mm. went on a ceremonial, you know, went in a public engagement to to trace the same route um, to to mark the 150th mm-hmm. anniversary of that and so therefore um you know it's people I, my worry is that children will watch that and that they'll quote that as being history oh well they do there's no doubt about that yeah. and, you get that and i think that that's a real sadness and especially because you know you can you can get it right um and I, i'm going to go a complete tangent i don't want to go off too far but one thing i will say not all historical drama not all old-fashioned dramas got it right because you know if you look at Mary Queen of Scots, the film mm, with mm. Vanessa Redgrave and Elizabeth and um, Glenda Jackson, who t- you know plays the role after yeah. she did the same year as she did Elizabeth R. The inaccuracies, of course, you know it shows the meeting and more than once. But you know, yeah. right in the opening scenes, you know when Mary's married to uh, Francis II or Francois, as she calls him, mm. you know, he, he they're having an idyllic time, uh, you know, walking along. Um, that you know these idyllic paths in in the mm. Loire, they're going on the on the river, and then suddenly you know he's seized by these these headaches and he's dead, and he's dying very quickly. Uh, but he dies not in bed, but he's he's riding off on the horse because the pain's less when he rides, and they find his dead body. Of course, he died in bed, and mm. um, and he you know, and I just think that that's so sad because you know the story is dramatic enough that he yes gets near infection when he's out hunting, and he swoons when he's in chapel and collapses and and you know all of that would have been dr- dramatic enough to have made a good story without having to it, embellish it in it, the way it, that they had it it would it would but my logic with most of historical fiction is 
yes, for every 10 people that watch, nine will just believe that's true. Or maybe a bit less, but be a bit generous. But one might go on and think, I really want to find out what happened here. And then they become a James Taylor or a Gareth Streeter or maybe even more than that. Um, if there can be more, I wouldn't hold myself as any great bastion, but but, but I, I would say because I'd always been interested. You know, I'd always read books and stuff. So then when I so I knew the history, may not have known it in great detail, but knew something of it mm. before. I mean, I I remember reading as a you know I was at school reading Antonia Fraser's book of Mary Queen of Scots. So I I, I sort of knew yeah. the history before I saw the film, and so then when I did see the film, when you it was like, on television, hey. yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, I understand, I understand that. But back anyway, back to dear Lord M. Dear Lord M. So anyway, he's described my excellent Lord Melbourne stood very close to me throughout the whole ceremony. I was completely overcome and was very much affected. He gave me such a kind and may I say fatherly look. I mean, for a girl who lost That's her, who never knew her father. I mean, I know. You've, you've, got, you've got to have some sympathy. And then when Lord Melbourne's turn to do homage came, there was some loud cheering. They also cheered Lord Grey and the Duke of Wellington. And then, um, then later she ascended, leaning on Lord Melbourne's hand. You know, she, there's constant references to him. Um, but he and- was a romantic. I know he wasn't what he was portrayed as being in Victoria. But if you look at portraits of him, he was, he was a handsome man. Yeah. And he was suave and he was... Quite a rom- I think he would have been quite a romantic figure. Now that's not to say that she has a explicitly sexual crush on him, but it might all be caught up with a very romantic and a romantic with a small R experience. I think so, but I think I think more than anything else, it's a it's this kind of he's a he's a quasi father to Rizzi. Yes. He's an older man. He is by virtue of being prime minister, he is um on a, in attendance on her daily more than um, he needs so, to be probably more than he needs to be yes um well he's he's uh, he's acting in effect as a private secretary as well as yeah. prime minister isn't he at the beginning of her reign hmm. uh, and because and we should young... we should just say with that that although the queen is not powerful like elizabeth I, nor is victoria at her sec- her succession quite as much just a figurehead as elizabeth ii is at hers there is still an ambiguity as to how much the prime minister draws his power from the crown and and, and lord melbourne is... would have would have known yeah. that himself because he was yes. dismissed from office by william the fourth only three years before victoria came to the throne it, exactly which is the last time that that that, that happens yeah. in in the uk um of course it did happen to elizabeth ii in australia as the queen of australia the governor general, governor general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah. but 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 the last time that happened so so that is in in very very recent memory at the time Victoria comes to yes. friend. So so she would have that that feeling that she could dismiss the prime minister if she chose to. And of course Robert Peel doesn't take up um, yeah. the premiership because of the bedchamber crisis because Victoria yeah. refuses and, and she it only gets happens away with it. Time. I mean that's for I mean we can't really go into the bedchamber crisis now. I don't think because I think people might consider that a dungeon too many. But we should come back yes. another time to talk about it. But it's but this is Victor. This is sort of what I was saying earlier about. Victoria's sheer nerve, I think, comes more from a girlish ignorance, which could just easily be a boyish ignorance. I don't don't mean that to be a a gendered point, but more a point about age. And it doesn't, I don't think it comes from her thinking, I'm going to use my power as queen because I understand my constitutional significance. I think she just expects that it's there. And and the the more surprising thing is that nobody nobody seems to question her. Well, who can? Well, yes, who can? Because she's, she's the queen. But it seems that 
that the officials don't you know that people go along with it rather than attempt to explain it or you know through other parties through other channels through you know it doesn't yeah. seem to be there seems to be little effort to attempt to try and correct it even if even if you know that you would have very little chance of success it seems that there's very little effort in attempting yes. to do that but i guess she's not listening to her mum at this point she's no. not she's got no husband now and of course this all changes when albert comes along and recognizes that if she's not acting as a constitutional monarch she puts the monarchy in jeopardy um, and he's also far less keen on the whigs <laughs> the whigs in general and, and melbourne specifically so albert comes along can be that voice but at the moment the pe people around victoria who could be talking to her and giving her counsel are melbourne Melbourne is benefiting from his relationship with Victoria and the interest that she's taking. So why would he do that? Exactly. Exactly. Um, but Melbourne's not the only person that she's effusive about in the coronation. Um, because if you look, you know, there was another most dear, dear, dear being present at the ceremony in the box immediately above the royal box who witnessed me. It was, of course, my dearly beloved Angelic Leighton. You know, her no, of course. Daughter. You know, but... Um, no mention of Mama. No, Layson is the mother figure, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so what, I she, is she? What would he call her? Governess? She was her governess, wasn't she? Mm. Um, but by this stage, she she's she's running the royal household now. The extent to which she's actively running the royal household, or certainly yes. doing a good job of running the royal household, is called into question. Certainly, when when Albert comes along, mm. and it's it's very telling that Leighton doesn't last very much longer. Although in uh, although you know going back to uh, Victoria, she lasted around uh, six or seven years longer than she actually than she did in reality. But um, yes, yes. But but really. You know, uh, she she still has great influence over. She's not a hairdresser, but she does have great influence over the. You know, the is she mistress of the bedchambers? Do you know? I can't remember what she actually. I don't think that was actually her title at this. No, point. I think that probably I had to go wrong. to a duchess. I could probably. be wrong. Yeah, well, certainly the mistress of the robes is a, is a is a duchess, right. and, and that is still a political appointment at this stage. So at this. Point, the way it's a whip, is it presumably? Yeah, and it's, it's the Duchess of Sutherland oh. at this point. Um, oh, is although, it? Yes, although it does change. Oh, it has so it's a political appointment, as in they're part of the government. Well, yes, because and that that's part of the whole thing with the bedchamber crisis. That oh, uh, so you're that talking about in Victoria's time, not in. Yes. Oh in, no, sorry, not now. Yeah, not now. Say. No, um, there is no current duchess um, appointed as mistress of the robes. I mean, the last one was uh, was the Dowager Duchess of Grafton, who died. Um, I think a year before the Queen did died in 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 the last couple of years, but she hadn't mm. been active at court. Yeah. For, several years i mean she was over 100 when she died and so there was um there'd been a, a sort of the next level down the the ladies of the bedchamber because of course there, there are yes. ladies of the bedchamber and women of the bedchamber so ladies of the bedchamber yes. tend to be um are, are of a higher aristocratic mm -hmm. rank um yeah. i think yeah. it's difficult to, to give a precise because they you know they do sometimes and and also it it is always a duchess. So the Dowager Duchess of Devonshire was the uh, Mistress of the Robes at the time Elizabeth II became Queen. Mm. Um, but she retired in 1967, and um, the Duchess of Grafton was still mm. Countess of Euston when she became Mistress of the Robes. Oh, I see. But she was so a Duchess in waiting. She was Duchess in waiting, so she was allowed to become. Yeah. Right, so it's no sense. longer a political appointment, it's only an honorary one. But of course, in Victoria's time, it was still a political appointment. Well, I think a lot of the problem with government. these roles, if I remember, and why Victoria felt 
she shouldn't have to have changed them is it wasn't that the roles were per se political but it was their no. proximity to her it was the prox yes and it was who these ladies were married to because their yes. husbands were members of the government and so and, it was seen and that it, they could a, have undue influence over yes. victoria through their wives because i think victoria said well queen adelaide didn't have to change hers when there was no, change of government and true. queen charlotte didn't have to change no. hers but, but, of course they, but they, they were weren't consort. queen regnant no yeah. and that's the big difference isn't it because the queen consort would have less certainly had no overt political power yeah. uh, although of course you know there are lots of rumors about queen adelaide and the influence that she had over william the fourth to uh to uh to bring forth her political uh leanings mm. but essentially they they were <laughs> that's the that's the issue with the queen regnant isn't it and that's why they you know and that's symbolic at the coronation because at the coronation of a queen regnant it is the only time that you would have both the peers and the peeresses put on their coronets at the time of the crowning because if there's a if there is a king and mm. a queen consort they would do it separately the peers would put on their coronets at the time of the king's crowns and the, mm. the um and the peeresses would do it at the queen consorts so the the queen regnant um that happens at the set and so that's symbolic of what's happening so mm, she's both okay. king and queen in effect and so therefore those mm. those ladies of the bedchamber who would be who are not political necessarily active actively political mm -hmm. themselves but are married to members of the government can be seen to have influence and so that's only dangerous because uh the queen regnant the government yeah. is in her name whereas when it's the queen consort and it's in her government's in her husband's name therefore it's there is influence but it's another step further removed exactly so it's, it's less immediate and it's it's less dangerous for want of a better word yes yes and and that makes complete sense and victoria unfortunately didn't have the wherewithal to realize that in in the 1840s oh, and i think um, that's her again part of her naivety yeah. the fact that she not only is it her age but it's also the fact that she had very little relationship with william the fourth when he was king yes um and so not, not that he is not that he's necessarily not that he would necessarily have been a great role model as a as a mentor from but but nevertheless there was no kind of influence from from the throne no yeah. no opportunity to learn at is it what's the expression learn at nelly's elbow um there's you know no yeah. opportunity for her to to learn anything like that it, anything she does learn comes and her mother isn't well versed in 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 this no. Um, and so, therefore, it, it is really only what she learns from from Melbourne at the beginning of the reign. Yeah, but and Lazen um, doesn't know anything either. I no, mean, no, uh, and she? that's and that's as well because she's a young woman rather than uh, rather than a young man. You know, it's, it's not. It would not be seen as propriety um, for her to have, you know, lots of to have in, intimate relations sounds terrible because that makes it sound sexual. But I mean, mm. to have intimate friendships with young men. Yes. Um, you know, for her to be left alone with them, for example, whereas Melbourne, because he's so much older, that's not to say there couldn't have been any kind of, I'm not suggesting there was a sexual relationship, but but not that that would have been impossible, but it's it's much less likely. And because of the positions of state, by this point, it's allowed. Whereas that's why, even though, you know, we can infer by the fact that although we've, you know, we've heard about all these references to Lord Melbourne, to Lakeson, and very little about her mother, that we can infer that the relationship between Victoria and her mother was probably at its widest gap. Well, does she say anything about the Duchess of Kent? She does. She says that uh, that they had dinner, um, and that um, Mama and Theodore remained to see the illuminations and only came in later. Mama went away before I did, 
stayed in the drawing room until 12, uh, 20 minutes to past 11, but remained till 12 o'clock on Mama's balcony looking at the fireworks in Green Park, which were quite beautiful. And that really is all that is said about mm. her mother. Uh, you know, and that's really that she just mm. happened to be in the room and they saw the fireworks together. There's no, uh, no affection, no love. No. And, and interestingly, that is the same in both uh, the Isha transcripts and in Princess Beatrice's mm. version. You know, that's not been that's not been altered in any way. Uh, by Beatrice so I think from that we can infer that there is that there is little love lost between them at this point but of course mm. because of propriety because Victoria is a young unmarried woman even though she's the queen she has to live with her mother of her course. mother has to live at the palace and so therefore even though they're they're probably not really on speaking terms mm. other than good morning you know good evening um they they have to they they have to maintain this pretense um yeah. that that you know for the good of of victoria's propriety and for the good of society that everything is all right and and from what we understand they did both play it with a plot they both they, under, they both understood that and did play the game you mm. know so there's the courtly sort of ritual that yeah. they would that they would see each other and they would appear at court ceremonies but very little real and, and victoria isn't humiliating her mother by no, excluding no. her from these sorts of moments where no, and she's not been... and she's not being and from what we understand she's not being overtly uh, nasty to her mother either she's not yeah, saying yeah. you know evil things either to her or about her in, in the presence of others just that it's it's not a it's mm. a strange relationship um that i mean that yeah. would certainly be my reading of it somebody you know with more somebody who studied it in more depth than me would might have a different reading but that's certainly the way that i would understand it that they they're tolerating each other but they're not really they're mm. not getting on cold a cold war effectively yes i mean, yeah. i wonder whether we talk about victoria victoria's coronation as the ultimate coronation of catastrophes i wonder in years to come whether she would have looked back and seen one of them i don't know if she had the self-awareness to process it like this but one of the catastrophes was that she didn't truly share it with her mother in terms of in the fullest sense i'm mindful that does she not after her mother's you'll know what this more than i will but after her mother's death i think she decries how those awful people meaning conroy and actually lazen kept yes. her and her mother apart for so long so she's now she's she's abdicating her responsibility of herself yes. and yes. but she's also absolving her mother and she's in and she's blaming these other two characters for it well, it's not just those two, but yes, you know, it would be another people like Flora Hastings and 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 others. Yeah, at the time. yeah. So that's yes, yes, that's true. I, I mean, we don't know what she felt about Coronation Day and her mother, but she certainly does. She certainly does lament the fact that they that they weren't closer when they were younger, mm. uh, and she certainly does. You know, she refers to her mother only in the most glowing terms um, after her death. I mean, she does say that. You know, she. I think she does. I'd have to look at it in more detail, but I think she does acknowledge that there had been issues between them um, and that they were both culpable in some way. But mm. essentially, it really, she's um, she's she's looking back through rose-tinted spectacles mm. and she's she's also not acknowledging really that um, that a lot of it was down to the you know the yeah. agency of both those women rather than rather than the fact that, that other people yes. were getting involved. Um, so I, I, I would wager that she probably did look back mm. and, and regret that that she didn't share that. And I mean, you know, it, this may be a, a fanciful step too far, but I think that if she were to, if she had read back those entries, which we know she sometimes did, mm. Mm. about 
not so much about Melbourne because I don't think Melbourne because Melbourne was taking the fatherly role, but certainly the way she refers to mm. Leighton as being the most angelic person, the person closest to me, and all of that. Mm. Would she have read that and had those pangs of guilt about? I wish I'd been saying that about my mama. I, I, I don't know that she did, but I, w- I would wager that it's likely that she would have done, given what we know about Victoria and given what we know about for her for not editing it back. You know, you read yes. some of those political memoirs based on diaries. And it's like, oh, I have this, I have this terrible worry that I think someone might invade the Falklands in a few years' time, or or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And all these that <laughs> either they're so wise after the event, before the event, but yeah. you just she could have because she obviously feels very hostile in her memory to Layson later, which I think is quite sad. But she doesn't, she doesn't censor her early affections. No. And I admire that. No, and I don't think those early affections are ever entirely gone, but mm. she does realise that Leighton was not entirely a benevolent figure. Yes, yes. And and I guess that is part of growing up. You know, we look well, at... Well, it is. I think, I, think, I think for all of us, you know, you, when, you're, when you're a small child, you see your parents as being heroic. And then mm. it's as you get older, you realise that they have the same stresses, strains, mm that anybody else does and they become slightly less heroic that doesn't mean to say that they're any less you know that you regard that you held them in any less regard yeah you don't see them as being kind of superheroes in the same way that you do when you're a yes. small child and i think that that is to do with maturity um but and i would likewise say- in your adolescence you sometimes really resent your parents and the structures and regulations they've put around your life and in a sense, Victoria's in a late adolescence at, yeah. at this stage because of the weirdness of her upbringing. And then as you get older, into your 20s, 30s, 40s, you look back and you're so grateful for your parents and appreciative of those things you did that you hated them for in your rebellious patch. And I guess Victoria's going through that to an extent here. And of course, because she's become queen, you know, she's not had a sort of gradual loosening of the mm. of the apron strings. She goes from being completely under her mother's influence mm you know, uh, begrudgingly on Victoria's part, but completely under her mother's influence to, you know, I mean, the first thing that she does when she becomes queen is that she orders that her bed is taken to the next room Mm -hmm. because she's been sleeping in the same bedroom as her mother and and that she goes down the stairs alone to meet Mm -hmm. Lord Melbourne Mm -hmm. alone. You know, it's all of those things are the the first things that she thinks of, of of doing that. So it's a, it's, um, you know, it's a complete and utter change and so quickly, whereas for most people, it will be more gradual. Um, yes. you know, and so therefore that I think that 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 also helps um, that, I agree. That, yeah. that feeling as well, because with, you know, it's, it's accelerated at a thousand miles an hour. You know, she goes from from being completely, you know, the the, the child to being the mm. queen um, mm. overnight. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's that's the hereditary system for you. That does happen. But it's it's just she doesn't have that opportunity to to process it or to be able to, or for that relationship mm, to evolve, mm, it, it just just changes mm, completely. Mm. Um, and that's not to remove the influence of people like Conroy from it, because obviously that that will have affected things. Yes. But I think that even without Conroy and without the the strictures that are imposed by the Duchess mm, of Kent, mm. I think that the, the, the process that Victoria went through would probably have been the same mm, without, mm. without those extreme figures involved. I... I, I agree. I agree. And I suppose summing up this episode then, I guess we can see that this this chaotic coronation comes to Victoria at a chaotic time in her life. 
uh, when we were talking about Catherine of Aragon, we thought, well, she had a day of great joy, but we know there's tragedy coming. I guess what I quite like about Victoria's is there's chaos in her on the day and in her life, but there's some real love and peace coming. Now there's tragedy yes. too, of course. Yes, but to 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 quote her late majesty elizabeth the great you know grief is the price we pay for love and that's that's the great grief that victoria later has is because of the great love she finds for alba and her mother yes and it's nice to know that this chaos we find victoria in today is not the end of the story indeed it's not and and you know, I, I think, you know, I've quoted um, the, uh, you know, Edward VII, the, the TV series. There's a great scene where Gladstone is at the time of the Diamond Jubilee, uh, calling her, a, a, um, I can't remember the exact words, but something like, oh, you know, stubborn old woman. And the, the Prince of Wales says, yes, yes, indeed, stubborn old woman. Uh, stubborn, obstinate old woman, I think she is. And a great queen. And I think that's that's really mm. how... You know, Victoria keeps the show, even though she retreats for a long time, she keeps the show on the road and mm. she's, she never stops. She never loses the sense that she is the queen. Um, and I think that 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 remains with her. Mm. You know, that's that's there. We can certainly see it here at the coronation. That remains with her right through until the mm. end of her reign. Well, this brings us to the end of our series on coronation catastrophes. Um James, thank you for your work and insights and for discussions. I hope everyone's enjoyed it. I know we've been long, um, but I hope it's been good fun to listen to while the ironing's on, while you're doing the ironing or dinner's on. I was listening like when I'm not running to, to podcasts. Well, so. people might. We, we, we speak at pace, so I think that would be <laughs> attractive. There are no plans for another episode in this series, guys, or indeed no firm plans for any other podcast series. But if you've enjoyed this, let us know, because there could be more where this came from on this topic probably not with this exact topic or other topics we'd love to know your feedback we'd love to know your thoughts the royal history geeks out there make so much of what we do possible and we're so grateful thank you for listening everyone and we hope to speak to you again in some format very soon bye <laughs>